Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If you're a reader of TechDirt and or a listener to this podcast, uh, you almost certainly already know who Cory Doctorow is. Uh, indeed, I'd guess that if you're interested in the topics that we uh, talk about on TechDirt, there's probably a greater chance that you know who Cory Doctorow is than what TechDirt is. <laughs> uh, Cory was on this podcast almost exactly two years ago uh, to talk about his then new book, Walk Away, and he is back now uh, to talk about his new book, which we'll get to in a second. Of course, Many people also know that uh, Corey is involved in a number of other things, uh, including his ongoing work with the always wonderful site Boing Boing, as well as his work with the Electronic Frontier Foundation uh, on and off over the years. And a big part of Corey's work with EFF there over the last few years uh, has been focused specifically on issues around a particular part of the DMCA, which is Section 1201, sometimes referred to as the anti-circumvention part of the DMCA. And that's the part that makes it against the law to get around any technological measures that effectively controls access to a work. In short, DMCA 1201 was basically designed uh, as a law that would make getting around or even telling people how to get around DRM uh, into a crime. Now, you can you can probably sort of maybe understand why the legacy copyright industries like the recording and movie studios wanted that. Uh, they wanted to protect their content with DRM and they knew that DRM lasts for generally about a millisecond before someone cracks it. Uh, so they got this law added to the books in 1998 that says it violates the law to do anything to get around technological protection methods by which they meant DRM. Uh, and that's true even if you're doing it for totally legal purposes. Uh, it's part of the fun of the law. Of, cor of course, uh, once that law was officially in place, it was applied to a much broader uh, set of situations than just stopping people from breaking DRM. It's been used in cases where people wanted to put off-brand ink into printers that they bought or to maybe buy a different company's garage door opener. Uh, for years, Corey has been pointing out just how incredibly damaging Section 1201 is, beyond the most obvious cases, uh, talking in great detail about the problems of effectively using the law to reach into the products that we, in theory, own and telling users that it's illegal to make any changes to our own products. Considering how much copyright maximalists like to talk about property rights, I find it a bit ironic that they abandon those beliefs when it means locking down the products that other people buy. So uh, why am I bringing this up if we're talking about Corey's new book? <laughs> uh, the new book is called Radicalized, and uh, the, it's uh, a book of four short novellas. And the uh, first novella 
in this book uh, plays very much into this discussion. The, the, that novella is entitled Unlicensed Bread, uh, which may give you a sense of what it's about. And uh, it's described as a tale of immigration, the toxicity of economic and technological stratification, and the young and downtrodden fighting against all odds to survive and prosper. But really, in a sense, it's a tale of how Section 1201 of the DMCA can have very, very far-reaching implications way, way beyond whether or not you're able to listen to pirated music. Uh, as I said, that's only one of the four novellas included in the book. But as Corey himself told me, it's the uh, most masnicky, uh, and that's a quote, <laughs> of, the, of the four novellas in the book. And he also called it pure tectored porn. Uh, it's also, truth be told, the only novella that I've had a chance to read since I just got the book yesterday. Uh, but it's exactly as he says. Uh, take all of my concerns about DMCA 1201 and wrap them in an engaging near-future science fiction story, and that is Unlicensed Bread. So, Corey, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thanks, Mike, and thanks for that very, very generous uh, introduction. I really appreciate that. Sure, sure. Well, uh, I mean, you deserve it, and uh, lots of people know your work, and I, I hope that lots of people already uh, have gotten a chance to, to get the book, which just came out, right? I mm -hmm. don't remember, a it's few weeks ago. Yeah, March 18th. Okay. So, um, and uh, it... it as always, uh, it's excellent. And, and you, you know, there are some people who always get worried about like, um, trying to, to present a message through fiction. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that you've always been really, really good at is, is making sure that the, the, the fiction part of the, of, mm -hmm. of what you write is really, really engaging and compelling on its own, uh, entirely separate from the message, but then also weaving in important messages as well. And I think, um, that's definitely true in, in this case as well. Um, Thank you. You know, I think a lot of times when people say, oh, I don't like it when someone does X or Y in their fiction, what they mean is when X or Y is done badly, it's bad. Ah, uh, yes. You know, and, and I think that's generically true. I mean, you know, think of people, the exhortation to show instead of telling. It's many, many people have observed that that's a rule for amateurs, that, that pros sh uh, uh, t show or tell all the time. That, that right. Exposition, the, the problem with exposition isn't that it's exposition, it's that it's bad exposition. <laughs> right, right. Yes. Yes, I think that that totally makes sense. Um, so, so let, let's talk a little bit about about unlicensed bread first of all. And um, sure. you know, I, I think the the easy story would be that you were trying to tell a story about about DMCA twelve hundred one. Is there more to it than that? Yeah. So I should start by saying it's actually it's unauthorized bread. Normally, I'm not pedantic oh, about it, but given I'm that sorry. we're sending people to it, we should mention that it's called unauthorized bread. Ah. It's a, it's an easy enough mistake. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so uh, unauthorized bread, it's, uh, it was the germ of this whole collection, these, these four uh, uh, stories that are in this, in this book. And um, it is in part a story about the dangers of 1201, but it's, it's a story that kind of sets the stage for the whole book. So on the one hand, it's a story about how uh, our technology adoption curve for bad technology is that if you have a terrible technology idea, you have to first impose it on people who no one listens to when they complain. Right. And so all of our worst technology ideas start with people like prisoners and kids and mental patients and people on welfare benefits and parolees and, and of course, immigrants and especially refugees. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the, the problems, I think, of uh, are emerging from, from DRM uh, are ones that are ways off in the future. 
and you have to kind of use your imagination to understand what the risks are. And so I, my, my hope is that by telling a story about someone who's kind of further ahead on that bad technology adoption curve than, than most of my readers, that I can kind of get them alerted to it or, or inflamed about it. But at the same time, um, I wanted to tell a story about how technology uh, is, is mostly about, what it, about who it works for and who it works against, not what it does, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of the times when we, when we get upset about technology, we, we focus on the features and not on the huge, who the features are used for and who they're used against. Yeah. And that category here, I think, leads us astray. And so one of the things about this, this book uh, or this story is that as they seize control of their technology, as they seize the means of computation, they don't live through a technological dark age. They, they enter a technological utopia that the same technology, depending on who's wielding it, is, is either utopic or dystopic. You know, if if you had a a tool like DRM that allowed you to control and make sure that you you never installed an uh, operating system update without trusting the the entity that signed it, and that it would be impossible for someone else to stick an operating system in your computer uh, without without uh, you knowing about it, you know, to modify your operating system without you knowing about it, that's a that's a very powerful pro security pro user measure. If that's literally that same tool is, is shifted so that the root of trust rests with the manufacturer, so the manufacturer gets to decide whose products you can use, it's dystopic. Yeah, and, and it's all about control. And so that was the second thing I wanted to 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 think through in the story. And then the third thing was was this idea of like kind of oligarchic policy because it's pretty obvious on its face that none of this is good policy, right? So how is it that we have all these policies that are terrible and that keep getting enacted? And I think that it's because as the share of wealth controlled by the 1% of the 10th of a percent has increased, the extent to which we can make policy has become constrained, right? You can only make policy if it doesn't gore the ox of someone rich enough to stop you from making that policy. And the number of oxen owned by people who are that rich <laughs> has only increased. And so, of course, it's not just technology, right? It's 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 every domain. You know, I just heard... um. Uh, about uh, in West Virginia, you know, the, the top industry there, it's not coal, it's actually chemical processing. And the biggest chemical processor is Dow. I might have even read about this on Tector for now that I think of it. So the biggest chemical processor is Dow. And and uh, there's a, a regulatory proceeding underway to determine whether they should relax the national standards for water pollution mm-hmm. and, and allow higher levels of water pollution in West Virginia. And the argument that Dow's lobbyist has made is that the national uh, uh, maximum amounts of tox- toxin levels are set based on the average BMI nationwide. And West Virginians are fatter than the average American. <laughs> and also, they don't drink as much water. Right. And like, this is the kind of policy argument you make when there is a blank box on a thing that you know you're going to get through if you can fill in all the blank boxes. And one of the blank boxes is, why is this policy needed? And you just write, like, anything that comes into your head, and you know that you win, right? Yeah. So, like, we live in, like, this this evidence-free, uh, evidence-free policy vacuum that isn't just about copyright. You know, Jamie Boyle used to call copyright the evidence-free zone. But everything is the evidence-free zone now, yeah. right? Uh, you know, uh, charter schools and high stakes testing and Mark Zuckerberg's favorite, you know, digital based learning product that is being imposed on students across America with no evidence for them. It's basically like the hobby horses and sacred cows of rich people are our policy. 
And, you know, poised against that, DMC-1201 makes tons of sense. Because if you can bootstrap DMC-1201 into, like, a new doctrine that you could call felony contempt of business model, Mm -hmm. like, what rich person wouldn't want it to be a literal jailable offense to reconfigure a product they sold you so that it listens to you instead of doing what their shareholders wish you'd do? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that that you get in, in the book, which you know, really gets at me, and I've talked about this in, in other contexts before, is like the the attempt by by the, you know, fictional company in the book to to frame its its use of DRM and its its attempt to get get away from people jailbreaking its product as a, you know, a consumer benefit. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a that's a hell of a thing, isn't it? Right? Yeah. You know, the this idea that like um you know we we well, you get this from the printer companies all the time, right? Yeah. But by sneaking a software update into your computer that stops you from running the third-party ink that you sought out and bought, we are giving you the benefit of making sure that you're not running third-party ink. <laughs> it's, right. It's, you know, it's a, I mean, it's like saying, you know, the reason I'm cavity searching you at this roadside is to keep you safe. Right. You right. know, it's, it's, it's just a, like, like it's, it's, Every abuser's argument is like, <laughs> "Look what you made me do." Yeah, I mean, right? it's you know the the one that it seems similar to me too that I've talked about is like the whole concept of zero rating, you know, mm-hmm. where where you know sure. a, 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 a ISP or cell phone service you know gives you a cap on how much you can do, but lets certain things through, and then they position that as a consumer benefit. It's only a consumer benefit because they're taking away the stupid, you know, ridiculous limits that they put in there in the first place. Yeah. You know? And, and yeah, so, yeah. I mean, the, the the joke that I've made in the past is like, you know, you're not a, a hero if you rescue people from the fire that you set, right? Right, 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 right. Yeah, I think that's very well put. I, in fact, I have nothing more to add. That is perfectly put. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, and and yet that's but but we're seeing that happen over and over again, which is people are setting up these ridiculous conditions, and then you know offering you the benefit of taking away the conditions. I mean, it's the same, like, you know, I, and I've written about this too with like Tesla, right? I mean, you can buy a Tesla and they'll, for a, a cheaper model, uh, you know, won't go as far and the battery won't last as long, but you can pay a fee to, to upgrade it. And, you know, there's a, there is a, an element of you and they're saying, well, that, you know, that allows it to get into hands of people who can, couldn't afford the, the full thing. And, you know, sort of positioned as this consumer benefit, but, the, but there's a, a, a very loud voice in the back of my head screaming but wait a second you're like purposefully making the the car crappier through software there's no physical limitation here right you know and and it feels wrong so i think what where the only way to understand this is to then bring back in 1201 right because you know i imagine like i said okay i'm gonna make this car cheaper by inserting a bolt in the cigarette lighter so that you can't put your own charger in it. You have to buy a charger from my approved list of chargers, and I will use the excess profits from that to subsidize the car overall. Not everyone needs to charge their phone in their car. This is a way to subsidize the cars for the people who can't afford them from the people who have fancy phones that need charging, right? right? Well, fair enough. But you would expect that if that were like someone's dumb business model, that the next time you went to the gas station, that next to the fishbowl full of 50 cent chargers would be a fishbowl full of 50 cent screwdrivers that remove the bolt, <laughs> right. right? And that's the difference with the DMCA. So, you know, I'm like, I, th- I, I don't know that we've ever talked about this, but at a guess, I would say that you are much more of a believer in markets than I am. That's but probably true. Even someone who is 
somewhat skeptical of markets, or or at least I'd say that I view markets as a tool and not like a um, and not like a, a an end in and of themselves. Uh, that that even I, as someone who is who is not a market true believer, understands that markets are supposed to work by posing against one another the forces of what one person dreams up and what another person dreams up right right it's it's not meant to be that like i figured out a thing and now no one else is allowed to look too closely <laughs> at that thing right that's 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 actually the opposite of markets right that's what yeah. markets replaced which was patents royal yeah right which was the idea that like oh uh, I'm, i am the king and i favor you and you can make silver ribbon and no one else can make silver ribbon and if anyone does we will you know we'll have them drawn and quartered and displayed at the tower of London. <laughs> like that's what markets are supposed to replace. Yeah. You know, uh, it's supposed to replace the aggregated decisions of lots of consumers with the individual judgment of aristocrats, lords, kings, and those who are appointed to serve as their agents. And that's what I think, you know, if you want to understand why Elon Musk's program is no good, it's because it exists at the sufferance of a of an of an oligarchic lord, which is to say, you know, the regulators in Congress, as opposed to uh, on the basis of its ability to survive in a market. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and I think that's very true. I mean, you know, in, in the in the opening, I said, you know, a lot of this really is, in some ways, an attack on property rights. And so, for people who claim, I mean, usually people who believe strongly in markets also say they believe strongly in property rights, and yet this seems to go against that. Um, and yet it is often the same people who claim to support it, which is a, a whole other. Well, and if you want to <laughs> if you want to get back to the to, to kings, you know, that is um, that's that's uh, feudalism. Right. Yeah. Fe feudalism is how you can believe in property without believing in markets. <laughs> right. It's in, under feudalism, a small aristocracy owns all the property. Right. And in this case, it's, you know, artificial transhuman immortal life forms called limited liability corporations that use this as gut flora. Right. And then uh, and then everybody else is a tenant. And we can only use the property that's leased to us through the, from the aristocracy in ways that meets with the aristocracy's approval and does and, and you know, they will only approve things that enhance the, the aristocratic status quo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's always fun talking to you because you always put things in an interesting perspective. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm full of beans today. I've been writing up. Uh, we talked about this a little before. I'm about to go off and do a bunch of speeches about kind of how to how to look yourself in the mirror when the world is going to hell. Yeah. And, so so well, let's let's talk about that for a minute since yeah. <laughs> since we have the opportunity. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, we've talked a lot on the podcast and, and on the site, obviously, about a bunch of things that have been happening uh, in terms of bad policies concerning the, the Internet lately, uh, with Europe leading the way, but but other countries not very Oh, Australia's given them a run for their yeah. money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Australia also being a problem. The UK, which may, may soon, in uh, theory, be out of the EU, also doing a, a, a bang-up yeah. job. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's not clear that the U.S. is, is you know, in some sense, we may we may survive the worst of it thanks to the First Amendment blocking some of the worst ideas, but but not necessarily. Um, so yeah, uh, what's going on? <laughs> well, I think we're seeing this this like uh, oligarchic moment, right? We're seeing uh, the, the evidentiary policy vacuum being filled by the parochial interests of the people who have the most money to spend on creating policy outcomes that are favorable to them. Yeah. Uh, and and what's happened is so I think that there was always a constituency 
for what I call the whitelist internet, mm-hmm. where you know only things that have been approved get to be said. Yeah, uh, only images on a whitelist and so on. I got into arguments with people all the time on on Twitter in the Article 13 side who are like, "Well, cable television manages to not have infringing material on," and I'm like, "You know that Twitter is not on cable TV. <laughs> this thing we're arguing on is not on cable TV and wouldn't couldn't exist on cable TV under its liability regime." They're like, "Well, I trade Twitter, right?" And and I think that's the the key piece is the platforms themselves, by dint of their monopolistic dominance have been such bad actors yeah. and have been so like manifestly unfit to rule that people are now willing to do anything if someone can convince them that it hurts the platforms. Yeah. And meanwhile, I think the platforms are saying like, don't throw me in that briar patch, right? Like I think the platforms are like, you're going to impose a regulatory burden that I can afford, but that no nascent competitor of mine can <laughs> afford. Gosh, if you insist, I mean, yeah. You know, if there's like a tell, it's Zuck going to Congress and saying like, "We let let us help you make some rules for Facebook, yeah. right?" Well, those rules are going to be rules Facebook can can live up to, and no one else can. And they're not going to prevent Facebook from doing what Facebook does. There was an astoundingly good paper uh, from Berkeley, I think it was Berkeley Law Review mm-hmm. last week, called um, "The Antitrust Case Against Facebook." Mm-hmm. That is a kind of companion to Khan's piece, the the Amazon's antitrust paradox, mm-hmm. and and it made a bunch of points that I never really thought through. Like oftentimes I read these papers and I go, oh, that's the thing I've been thinking about said so much better than I ever would. This was like, oh my god, I never thought of it that way. And and she's she says um, she's she's a like a Yale law grad, but she's okay. a, she identifies as an entrepreneur, and she says, remember that for the first ten years. Facebook identified itself as the pro-privacy alternative to other social networks. And I was like, wait, what? And then I was like, yeah, they did. Yeah, They totally did. Do you remember when, when they did Beacon and they said, we'd promised you before we would never track you. That was a terrible mistake. We're starting a user council to evaluate all tracking and mining operations that we might consider in the future because we never want to lose your trust again. Um, Facebook used to say that the reason they were a walled garden was to stop the bad actors like MySpace and, and Orkut which were, you know, early quote unquote surveillance capitalism systems from scraping your data and mining it, right? This, they, they were like the stewards of your privacy. And so Facebook said, we will maintain your privacy. But as they were able to bootstrap monopolistic practices like abusing the CFAA and so on to, to take control of the market, they killed their competitors. And every time they kill a competitor within a year, they radically expand their surveillance operations. And, you know, there's one viable independent Facebook competitor right now, and it's Snapchat. Mm-hmm. And Snapchat's business proposition is we're like Facebook, but more prof- private. Right. right. There's like this huge market appetite for privacy from Snapchat. And what did Facebook do about Snapchat? Well, they had this company called Anovo that made spyware disguised as a battery monitor. They used it to spy on, on users to figure out whether or not they're using Snapchat and how. They used that to figure out that they should buy Instagram. And then they bought Instagram and refined its feature set based on data they stole from users using Anavo, right? All of this stuff is stuff that would be illegal under antitrust. So last year, Facebook lost 15 million Americans between 13 and 34 years old. They all went to Instagram, right? Like if there is a story (laughs) that you need about how monopoly 
right. is the thing that gives us surveillance capitalism, which is I'm, I'm writing this big response to Zuboff's book right now because she thinks that surveillance capitalism, she calls it a rogue capitalism. She says that it's it's markets without decisions because through through A-B splitting and machine learning, the platforms have figured out how to take away our ability to make decisions. They just brainwash us with data, with data-driven persuasion tools. And, and I'm like, that's not a persuasion tool, right? That's just monopoly. That's like, that is a thing that like, you know, Brandeis would have recognized as a monopoly harm. I mean, you would have had to explain the internet to him, right? <laughs> yes. But like Brandeis would have, Brandeis would not have been confused by whether this was brainwashing through surveillance or just straight up monopoly capitalism. Andrew Carnegie, again, you'd have to explain the internet to him, would totally get this and recognize it, right? And and so that's what I think we're living through right now, is there's this constituency for destroying the platforms whose heart is in the right place, but who are, who are you know, easily led astray by pitches that say, we will destroy the platforms, when really what people are saying is, we will put them in gilded chains, yeah. that, you know, chains of office that will safeguard their eternal dominance. Yeah. I mean, you know, I had written this post not too long ago that basically I think the headline was something to the effect of do people want a dead Facebook or do they want a better Facebook? Mm -hmm. um, and it was uh, a little bit depressing to me how many people just said we just want a dead Facebook. Um, and I understand entirely where they're coming from. Um, mm -hmm. But like, again, like if that's your goal you know, you're going to come up with policies that don't actually kill Facebook, but that actually lock in Facebook, right? Because anything that hurts, that seemed to hurt Facebook is seen as worth it without any recognition of the cost to everyone else, right? And that seems to be the direction that we're going in, that all of these laws that are being passed are there, you know, and, and sometimes people are explicit about it. Sometimes they sort of try and hide behind some sort of other, other thing, yeah. you know, and, and say, well, you know, it's it's to go after Facebook and YouTube uh, and and you know Google search in some cases like in or Amazon and on e-commerce is basically just to 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 punish these companies and and again like I I understand the instinct there and I understand like everything that you, that you said I understand about the concerns about how large and how dominant these guys are um, and I uh, agree to some extent I think but but I think like. You know, there's a reason why they got so big, and there's a reason why, you know, and you know, some some for good reasons, some for for bad reasons. But I think you know you have to think through the consequences of how do you how do you deal with that in a way that doesn't destroy everything else that's good about the internet, and and nobody wants to do that because everyone's just so focused on like this is this will will make Facebook pay or this will make YouTube pay, and therefore we must do it. Yeah, I mean, so here's where I think, like, you know, you and I maybe part way a little. Because when you say there's a reason they got so big, I think about that story about Instagram. And I'm like, oh, they got big because they, they <laughs> did things that would have been illegal before Ronald Reagan. Uh -huh. Right? If they didn't get big, like, like face it's i call it's just ladder kicking right everyone goes up the ladder and wants to kick it out from behind sure sure you know facebook grew by disruption yeah but facebook then used its policy dominance to prevent disruption yeah i mean i see i i'm yeah I, I'm, I'm not sure i totally agree with that right i mean i think there's to some extent like there there is this nature of network effects right and and like 
you know, the value in some of these platforms is their global reach and their ability that that everyone is connected using them. And and so I think there's there's value there, and there's a reason why, you know, uh, these networks get really big, and you have a sort of winner take all situation because you want to be able to reach everybody else, right? And you want to be able well, to to but, gain. But the you know, under under normal circumstances, a company that has all the users and is returning thirty four percent margins <laughs> would not be called the kill zone, right? Sure. They would be called the target <laughs> and and so you know like like i just so i just find the account of first mover advantage and network effects unconvincing because we're not searching alta vista with our craze right <laughs> sure sure and, yeah and so i and you know i always and, and i think that like as a first approximation if you remove all the things that are supposed to safeguard against monopolies and then you get monopolies and you get them in every industry, including ones that don't have network effects, it would be worthwhile at least investigating <laughs> whether restoring those anti-monopolistic safeguards might do something to curb monopolies. All right. Like what's the monopoly power? Like what's the network effect that created a single monopoly in professional wrestling? <laughs> right. Or, sure. or, or that, or that, you know, reduce the number of, um, of record labels to four, yep. you know, or, yeah, or, or that made one hedge fund the largest landlord in California. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I don't disagree with you. Like I actually, I mean, I, uh, I'm a, you know, my, my position is I'm a believer in, in competition. I think competition is, is important and, and antitrust is an element of that. Um, where I think, and I think in, in most of those, in those non-technological uh, worlds, I think you're exactly right, and I think there are really clear antitrust cases. I think it's it's more complicated in the technology world, in part because, like, you know, so I, I think there is probably a strong argument for like, you know, Facebook shouldn't be able to buy Instagram. Um, you know, that that is a, a, a stronger case, but like, Facebook is still you know a, a large global platform on its own, separate from from Instagram and, and WhatsApp. And, you know, it remains that even if you splice off Instagram and WhatsApp, I'm not sure how an antitrust action prevents Facebook from from being a bad player in the marketplace by itself. Because if we cut Facebook down to size, right, if we didn't let it buy and it's not just Instagram, right, it's it's like all the different sure. companies that it's that it's bought up. If we cut them down to size, then they're margins will fall to the point where they no longer have the surplus capital to divert to lobbying, right? And they will have to compete on features rather than competing on uh, on on uh, market dominance and their ability to capture regulators. But how much, and, 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 and again, like I, I, I agree in principle, um, uh, but but how, do, do you really believe that, that Facebook's dominance today is because of its lobbying efforts? Well, I mean, I think that like Facebook became dominant by doing things like writing bots that would log into MySpace on your behalf <laughs> and grab your old MySpace messages and bring them into Facebook, which is like, it's a critical thing to be able to do, right? right. That's how you fight network effects is you have these adversarial interoperability layers that allow people to use the noob tool without abandoning their friends who are on the old right. tool. But Facebook then sued Power Ventures out of existence, <laughs> yes, right? They, they paid the a lot thing. of money yeah. to get a lo lot of law review articles written and amicus briefs and so on that made this radical interpretation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act into now the law of the land, you know? So, like, again, like, I, you know, there's this, this my, one of my favorite Woody Guthrie lines. It's a quote from Joe Lewis. Uh, and they, they asked Joe Lewis, 
why he was going to Europe to fight the Nazis when he'd been fighting Uncle Sam at home in the civil rights fight. And he said, there's so much wrong with the world, but Hitler's not helping. <laughs> right? Like, maybe maybe Facebook would stand on its own, right? Yeah. But radical interpretations of the CFAA, it's lobbying yep. muscle. I mean, yeah, I think Facebook's lobbying muscle makes a big difference when it comes to things like... Um, uh, ever having to pay consequences for data breaches and sure. for lying about its privacy policies, like it's you know notwithstanding some EU fines, at least in the US, it's had it's had no real meaningful consequences. Yeah, I mean there are stories that it, it may it may now, but look, I, I, I far be it for me to be like a Facebook defender because I'm not right. Right. <laughs> um, I so my concern is always, and you know this conversation is really interesting. It's gone away from where I expected it to go, but like right. you know. I, my concern is always it's the same thing, right? It's the same thing that we were talking about the other stuff where it's like, how do you craft policy that that stops Facebook from doing the bad stuff without harming the rest of the Internet? And and that's where I just think it gets trickier and, and trickier. And that's where my concerns come in. Like, I, I agree. I would love to see a much smaller, less powerful Facebook in almost every way. And, and I'm. You know, I think the company is 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 terrible and terribly run and does all sorts of really bad things. But I worry about so many of these solutions that are being you know stated are the same thing as you know Article Thirteen or you know whatever the hell's going on in Australia or the terrorist directive or any of these things that are you know very much targeted at basically forcing Facebook and Google to pay a whole bunch of money, but which will then effectively lock them in. Even even like the policies that claim, you know, something like an antitrust attack on these companies that are, are targeted at them. I'm not sure that it really, you know, even like Elizabeth Warren has this, uh, you know, put out, that's sort of the most detailed plan, at least, you know, this plan to sort mm -hmm. of break up the companies. But also part of that is to turn them into regulated utilities. Um, and, and I don't see how that helps. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about turning them into regulated utilities, and and that's I think I think you you, you are hit putting your finger on something that is that's an important distinction, and it's the one I, I mentioned before, the distinction between um, uh, uh, constitutional monarchy and a democracy. Sure, right? Like like the problem with investing the tech platforms with state like duties is it puts a floor underneath how small we can make them. Mm -hmm. Because they can't be too small to perform those duties. I mean, if you if you read like Tim Wu is actually really good on this, and, yeah. and I would suggest reading his new book as well. It's really really good on this. The, the Curse of Bigness is yep. book about Brandeis, uh, and and you know he talks about how like AT and T because it had these public safety duties. Uh, you know, it was like it was part of America's civil defense and emergency readiness and so on. Every time someone proposed breaking up AT and T, one of their ready made arguments was. Well, do you want us to continue to perform these civic duties? Because we can't do both, <laughs> right? Right. And so uh, I think we do have to choose, right? Are we going to, like, like uh, I think that when people hear someone say uh, Facebook is not, you know, we don't want to, to force Facebook to deal with harassment in law, what they, what they hear is Facebook doesn't have a harassment problem. Mm -hmm. And what I think, uh, when I say something like that, I mean... Facebook has a harassment problem and we will not improve it by giving them a legal duty to police her police harassment. One of the reasons Facebook has a harassment problem is because if you want to talk to your friends, they're on Facebook and Facebook has shitty harassment culture. And so you have to choose between your friends and shitty harassment culture. Right. If, if there were other places to go, yep. 
you know, Facebook would be would be disciplined in that regard. So, you know, I, I think that you could imagine like splitting Facebook on a bunch of different uh, uh, axes. Uh, Clay Shirky did a great review with On the Media or interview with On the Media where he talked about Facebook as being really a chimera that does two things. The first one is locating people. Uh, especially people with hard-to-find traits, those people who went to high school with you, people who have the same rare disease as you, people who have the same unorthodox politics as you, including a politics that demands that you march through the streets of Charlottesville carrying a tiki torch <laughs> and chanting, Jews will not replace us. And also people who are useful to advertisers, right? People yep. are thinking about buying a refrigerator. Like, you know, the average person buys something like 2.1 refrigerators in their whole lifespan. <laughs> so it's really hard to figure out how to advertise refrigerators to people. And what surveillance gets you is the ability to like calculate an intersection like people who've searched on fridges people who've bought a house and people who are near my fridge retailer yeah. right and you can target those people i zuboff mistakes that for brainwashing i don't think that's brainwashing i think that that's like it's just a, a more sophisticated variation on the people who give out diaper coupons and maternity wards right, right? it's it's like it's it's creepy right but it's not brainwashing yeah uh and and you know, on the one hand, they do this. And the the problem with that from an advertising supported model is that it's not very clicky. Being in a group full of people with some rare affinity is actually like low engagement by nature, right? There's just not much news about your rare disease. Your old high school friends don't have that much to say to you. And so what they do, can I, can I swear on your podcast? Absolutely. So what they do is they, they use these engagement algorithms, which in the last three years has meant like non-consensual eyeball fucking with Trump headlines, <laughs> right? And then then you argue about Trump. And and so that's why their messaging tools look like they come out of the mid 2000s, right? right? Their targeting tools look like they came out of a Philip K. Dick novel set in the year 2150. <laughs> and their messaging tools look like LiveJournal. Right. And the, the reason for that is that if you had good messaging tools, they wouldn't be able to make enough money from targeting you because the actual returns are still pretty low. Like even if you're targeting refrigerator buyers on that intersection, yeah. your conversion rate is still like single digits, probably less than 1%. Yeah. And so they need to show you a lot of ads before they sell a fridge. Uh, and and so if you think about it in those terms, you could imagine cleaving Facebook on two functional lines, a directory and a messaging service, right? In the same way that you could consider like forcing Google to divest of its of the um, ad uh, acquisitions they've had, mm -hmm. and you'd have a search engine and you'd have an ad company. And if Facebook is just one of many messaging services that you can consummate your discovery of people you want to talk to using Facebook as a discovery service, and there are competitors who have better tools that might make it easier to avoid non-consensual Trump headline eyeball fucking, mm -hmm. then, then we might end up with a better future, even yeah. one in which network effects harness the message board, yeah. but not the but not the discovery system or the discovery system does have the the network effects because people you know LinkedIn has shown that people will voluntarily put themselves in in great detail in a directory yeah right uh, for some functional purpose but that it couldn't be repurposed as readily to these other negative anti-competitive effects yeah uh, you know I think that's like I don't think that's like a a, a ridiculous idea and I think that's um a not a terrible fit for Warren's framework. I, I also think that like Warren's, you know, her great lacuna is that she talks about like enhancing artists incomes, but she doesn't mention breaking up big tech. And as I said, a lot of times during the Article 13 debate, like if, if you think that reducing the number of places that you can go that aren't record labels or publishers to market your wares is going to improve your income, <laughs> you're out of your mind, right? right. Disney, 
Disney has never had an earnings call where they said our profits were higher than expected. And instead of dispersing that in the form of share, uh, you know, a dividend or bonuses, we're just upping royalty rates across the board to our <laughs> artists. Right. The thing that makes I mean, it's competition all the way down. The thing that makes entertainment companies pay artists more is uh, uh, when there are other entertainment companies yep. bidding against you. Yeah. And, you know, without someone bidding against you, mm, you know, uh, so so this kind of like we've been kind of dancing around the other stories, which we should mention. In yeah. The yeah. Um, and and there's three other stories in this book, and they all deal with these themes of like privilege, uh, power what you know seizing technology versus being bossed around by technology right you know all of these themes that are like at the core of of understanding what a what a good what makes the difference between a good technological future and a bad technological future so you know the, the there's a story in the book it's called radicalized it's the it's the title story of the book mm -hmm. and it was inspired by um a couple of things one was the the account of the woman who coined the term incel so the, the term incel was coined by a queer canadian woman who was having trouble finding physical intimacy with other people. And she thought of herself as someone who's involuntarily celibate. And so she created these message boards to support people who were like her. And um, what she discovered was that unlike other forms of support message board, where the people who hang around the longest are the people who figured it out. Like if you're on a message board for people who struggle with alcohol addiction, the elder states people are people who, who are sober. And when you fall off the wagon, they help you get back on by telling you it'll be okay. Right. But in incel message boards, everyone who figures it out leaves. Right. And the only people who are left behind are people who are as toxic as possible. And she she used this to explain the dynamic of, of incel. Because, like, the problem of being lonely, it's like it's a non-trivial problem. Yeah. And, you know, when you read the incel message boards, in between the toxicity, there is, like, real pain emerging, you know? And... and this is the difference between, you know, uh, weaponizing grief and and forming compassion for grief. And so this was the other part of the, the influence that went into the story was this Boston University uh, psych uh, uh, research study on suicide bombers in the occupied territories. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to investigate the hypothesis that suicide bombing was uh, the outcome of religious fanaticism or political fanaticism. And what they found was that the biggest correlate or predictor of someone being a suicide bomber was not whether they were committed to the cause. It was whether they were suicidally depressed, hmm. right? That, that being so traumatized by life in the occupied territories made you vulnerable to someone coming up and whispering in your ear, if you're going to do it, don't let it go to waste. Hmm. And because our narrative of, of radicalization is a contagion narrative where we say like some people have bad radical ideas and if you sit too close to them, the ideas rub off on you and you become a radical. Right. As opposed to this trauma narrative, then all of our response, and you think about the terror regulation and so on, all of our response is to suppress the contagion. Right. Right. And this is one of the reasons that like our response is so terrible is because when you suppress the contagion, you end up suppressing all the reporting and discussion of the contagion as well. Right. You suppress the Yazidi talking about the war crimes they endured, as well as the jihadis who committed those crimes, spreading the uh, photographic evidence of their crimes as a recruiting tool. Right. right? You, you get rid of both. And it's in algorithms or even moderators can't reliably distinguish between those two. And so. You know, it, it takes on the guise of the shitty apology. And the shitty apology, it goes like, I'm sorry you're angry at me. 
right? Like, have you tried being less angry at me? <laughs> you know? And, and we say, we're sorry you're traumatized. Try being less traumatized because we're not going to do anything about the trauma. Right. And so radicalize, that's all by a long-winded introduction. Radicalize is a story about respectable middle-class white dudes who watch the people they love most in the world die of preventable illnesses that their insurers won't cover and who go on message boards and become radicalized and go and become suicide bombers who kill healthcare executives and senators who vote for their agenda. Mm. And, and about the difficulty that we as a society end up facing in calling respectable middle-class white dudes terrorists right you know they're lone wolves they're deranged they're distraught <laughs> right and 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 also the somewhat discomforting uh way that the story is t told or, or that i tried to tell it is to make you have sympathy for their cause right because you know rights are only ever taken right they're never given and that means that in the wake of every struggle for justice there will have been monsters in the struggle and you will have rooted for them and you have to confront that and that's the thing that every justice struggle has had to confront is that in the in the uh their zeal for justice some of the people they cheered on were not people who in the cold light of day deserved those cheers some of those people are, are people who deserved your condemnation and knowing who's who that's a that's a tough thing to do and it's a tough thing to reconcile with after the fact yeah and, and, and you know so so it, I think the story worked really well. It, it's also a story that I think is is kind of, you know, controversial. But but it's been you know it really has uh, uh, found an audience because of the way that it deals with those those issues. And the other stories they're similarly trenchant. You know, one is a story uh, the the Mask of the Red Death about rich mm -hmm. preppers who who are dying of cholera because <laughs> you know you can't you can't solve the the apocalypse by running away and hiding while other people get it get the world going again you know right. like the there is no there is no degrowth degrowth future our future <laughs> is a bright green high tech future cuz like even if you say all right we're going to go back to a technology that supports 3 billion people the 7 billion corpses that you leave behind <laughs> are going to present a logistical and epidemiological problem that are going to destroy your whole project right right uh, and, and then the, the last story, it's called Model Minority, and it's uh, it's a thought experiment about what would have happened if Superman had intervened in the fatal beating of Eric Garner, mm. and and about the the fact that his white privilege turns out to be nowhere near as solid as he thought it was. And it, it's in part it's a story about being um, a white passing Jew. You know, my my father was racialized when he came to Canada, but by the time I grew up, no one thought of me as anything but white. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my dad was a refugee. Uh, and and had you know didn't speak the language and dressed and looked a way that marked him out as as a foreigner, mm -hmm. and I'm not. But you know I think a lot of Jews took as the lesson from the last forty years that um, or or sixty years that that we're just like white people and we can throw our lot in with white supremacy. I mean look at Stephen Miller, yeah, right. And then you get these these guys marching through Charlottesville chanting Jews will not replace us in Confederate LARP gear, <laughs> and y you realize that actually like the natural uh, alliance of all racialized people is with all other racialized people. And that whiteness is very temporary. And Superman, of course, is the creation of Jews yep. who were watching the horror of Nazi Germany across the ocean and who envisioned a very individualistic solution to what was a very collective problem, right? We didn't solve Nazism by, by one immortal golem going and punching the Nazis until they stopped, right? It was, it was this huge collective effort, the largest collective project, I think, in human history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, this is all good 
interesting <laughs> food for thought. Uh, and as I said, I have not read those those three, but I, I will probably by the end of the week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope you enjoy them. And and you know the audio. I sent you the audio book. It's it's really good. Will Wheaton reads radicalized. Oh, does nice. an amazing job. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's always good. Um, and Stefan Rudnicki, who who is Ender in Ender's Game, he reads uh, in the audiobook. Oh. Uh, he reads um, uh, The Mask of the Red Death. They're really, the readers are amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. great. That's, it's all very, very good. Um, and so, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I could talk to you forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, we do have a limited amount of time, and, and uh, I'm sure listeners have limited amounts of, <laughs> of patience. For sure, for sure. But, yeah, and I got to run too. Yep. But. Uh, yeah, but but the, as always, very very interesting. Um, oh, thanks, Mike. Uh, and it's always it's always great to talk to you, and you always uh, inspire lots of lots of deep thinking on my part, uh, which is good and always useful. Uh, yeah. And, you know, uh, and for everyone who hopefully enjoyed listening to this, and if you haven't yet, you should go get radicalized uh, and and read it. Again, it's it's split up as these four novellas, so you know each one is a, a relatively quick read, uh, but they're all. Uh, well, the first one I can I can say positively is very engrossing, uh, yeah. and I assume that the other three are. And from your descriptions, they certainly sound that way. Well, thank you. And I should mention that uh, the Intercepts TV arm uh, topic is a- adapting that first story for TV as oh, well. Oh, cool! That'll be very yeah. very interesting. Do you know when that'll be ready? Uh, no, no, I don't. I'm, I'm sorry. sure it's yeah. way TV is all hurry up and yeah. wait. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, great. Well, uh, again, thanks for for joining on the podcast, thanks, and uh, yeah. thanks to everyone for listening. And we'll be back. All right, next week. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.